welcome to this edition of Rail Group on Air, a joint podcast of Railway Age, Railway Track and Structures, and International Railway Journal. This is William C. Mantuono, Editor-in-Chief of Railway Age. This is the third in a series of podcasts that we are doing with agencies and members of the Commuter Rail Coalition, uh, coordinated by uh, Kellyanne Gallagher. And Kellyanne, thank you so much for facilitating all this. Our guest today, uh, we have top people from Metra in Chicago. We have uh, the executive director, Jim Derwinski, Bruce Marchese, the chief operating officer, Rich Oppenheim, the division director of Chicago Union Station, and Greg Godfrey, the chief dispatcher. Uh, welcome, everybody. I guess um, probably the first thing we'd want to start out with is the, uh, the current uh, pandemic and uh, and how Metra is is handling that. So, so Jim, uh, first question: uh, CARES Act funds uh, for Metra. How 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 have those been allocated so far? Uh, CARES Act money came in and it's been uh, flowing to us right now. Uh, everything's going toward just the operational costs of taking care of the uh, subsidy shortfalls and the fair revenue shortfalls. Where is ridership right now? Uh, how is it is it starting to recover? Bruce Marchese, uh, Bill. Um, we're we're, uh, you know, we're right around nine, down 91%. Uh, we had a low of about uh, 98% back in uh, in early April when all this started, and we've been slowly on the rise. And uh, as a matter of fact, that number in April was about 6,400 riders right about then. And then as of yesterday, yesterday was the highest of about 22,400. So we're slowly creeping up. In terms of hand of handling the uh, the, the the recovery, what uh, can you just can you just give us an overview of what you're doing in terms of uh, uh, equipment and facilities cleaning and sanitizing? Sure. So as far as equipment, we we clean and sanitize every day. Uh, when when whether it's in a depot or it gets into the yard, we're uh, like in a depot. We're we're hand wiping all the the you know, the, the seats down, the high touch point areas that you know on the seats, the door handles, railings, anything that people would touch. Um, and we've just uh, actually, we were, we, we've acquired a, a handful of, uh, we call them fogging machines for lack of better description, but they, they, uh, they are a handheld device that actually we can go through a, an entire train contest in less than 20 minutes and, and desanitize the uh, train contest. Um, and as you can imagine with all the, uh, the uh, demand for supplies like that, we just received a, a, another additional 50 of them just within the last uh, week, and we're starting to distribute them to various uh, uh, departments such as mechanical engineering and even our police department. So, um, we've, we, we, like I said, we uh, sanitize everything every day, clean them out, vacuum, sweep, do the standard things. But again, we wipe down all the high touch points on every, on every, uh, on every car and our locomotives as well, because we have to make sure that our engineers are working in a safe environment too. As far as facilities, um, whether it's an equipment facility or even our stations, because we have 243 stations that we serve out there, they're being cleaned every single day. Um, sanitizing, cleaning your standards. But we're uh, on a typical day we, uh, for a station, we may only hit it once a day. We're trying to hit them twice a day in certain certain higher ridership uh, stations that we do have out there. So we're uh, we're uh, doing a uh, 
a, a, a you know a really accelerated effort to get every to keep everything clean and sanitized. In terms of the fogging, uh, when is that typically uh, done? Is that done before trains are dispatched at at, at onto the system, or, uh, or or does that occur overnight? How how do you handle that? Right now, they're being done in our depots because uh, until just last week, we only had three units. So our three major terminal depots, when they come in, typically we have you know depending on the train and the nature of its flip, sometimes our flips are. Uh, within within five ten minutes, some of them are more lengthy. On the more lengthy flips, we'll be able to get through that uh, train. Like I said, about twenty minutes. We can, and sometimes less. We'll we'll do them in the depots, and then we'll get, and then uh, that's where they're done. Uh, going forward, now with the the larger amount of equipment that we've received, we're distrib- They'll be distributed to our maintenance facilities, so they'll be able to be done in our yards as well. So here's here's the really uh, difficult part. Uh, I, I think in terms of handling passengers, what measures are you taking in terms of social distancing or masking? Or what, what, and what, what are the requirements in, in the Chicago region? Like, for example, uh, New Jersey Transit, which just uh, today resumed a full schedule. Uh, they require everybody, all customers, all uh, conductors, everyone to wear a mask and they're trying to enforce the social distancing as, as much as they can. What, what, is, what is Metro doing? In Illinois, we have a similar uh, order, an executive order from our governor, stating that if you ride public transportation, you must wear a face mask or covering, face covering, unless you can maintain a six-foot social distancing uh, uh, distance. And uh, so what we've been doing is several different things. We we our conductors make uh, announcements on our trains uh, before the trip, during the trip, and every time they enter a car. So, for instance, when they enter a car, their normal their, their normal announcement is "tickets please" or "have your mobile apps launched," and uh, this gets ever all of our customers ready to display their 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 fares. In addition to that statement, we've also they're also reminding customers to wear the face masks. Um, we have also signage up in every car. There's uh, Multiple signs in every car. Our uh, our stations are are plastered with uh, face uh, face mask covering requirements. Um, our downtown terminals have signage throughout every terminal talking about face mask covering while you're walking through the station and as you're about to enter a platform. So we're we're alerting people to that as well. You know we do also have uh, platform announcements when we uh, our normal public address announcements that we make to give people uh, train information, we've also incorporated messaging about the mask as well, as well as most of our customers can sign up for um, email alerts for their specific train line or a specific train that they're, they want, they're, uh, they're wanting to ride. We're sending out alerts on that as well, reminding about the face mask requirements, as well as Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter and other social media areas as well. Um, the one thing as far as enforcing, what our conductors are, uh, we've asked the conductors to do is just remind people. We are asking people that they, they please wear a mask and to respect, each, you know, respect you know, their health and the health of others. And as far as social distancing, we've messaged out to our passengers to uh, you know, be definitely aware of that. We've come up with a, a calculation right now for X amount of riders in a car, which would provide that social distancing. So we've shared that with them. We've also put out a dashboard just recently showing 
trains by train counts so our passengers can see an actual train and see what the, the current count is and see how, how big, how crowded that particular train per car is, they can make the, you know, decisions, safe decisions on whether they want to get on that particular train or maybe wait for a, a later train in that day. So we just launched that. From a station perspective, uh, Rich Oppenheim, uh, can you describe some of the measures that are being taken? Union Station is actually owned and operated by our uh, Amtrak, um, and we work very closely with our counterparts at Amtrak and make sure that our operations are respected and uh, accommodated properly. In terms of uh, that, we, we have followed up. Uh, uh, there's a contractor that uh, Amtrak hires for cleaning. And we've done very careful follow-up with with that uh, with that organization and and the Amtrak uh, operations people as well. And uh, we've reviewed their cleaning uh, procedures and schedules. So far, we've had uh, no complaints about the facilities. Um, we are trying to get the message out to our passengers. Uh, I, I know the the common tendency for people as a, as the trains pull into Union Station, everybody uh, on on board wants to be the first one off. Right. Uh, traditionally. <laughs> so we have oh, yes. a big crowd trying to push toward the doors, and we've made a big point of emphasizing that uh, everybody will have time to get off. Be safe. Take your time. Don't crowd. I think we've been fairly successful in getting that job out there. Amtrak, uh, like, like Metro, uh, has reduced their schedule somewhat because of the uh, COVID situation and, and the, 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 uh, the downturn in, in the ridership. So they're running fewer trains, we're running fewer trains, and uh, it has given us a little opportunity to address some maintenance issues that, that might have uh, been a little more difficult to get to. At all of our stations that Metro owns, we have installed hand sanitizer units. So as passengers uh, walk through our stations, they have hand sanitizer stations that they can, that they can grab some sanitizer from. Amtrak does it as well, because as Rich mentioned, that is owned and operated by Amtrak. But also on our cars, what we're doing right now is we're in the process of installing like the Clorox wipes, uh, the, you know, the pull-out wipes. We're going to be putting mm -hmm. them in our cars. That, that, that installation has just started because we just received the material. But the other thing that we are going to install as soon as these devices come in are actually the hand sanitizer units like you would see in the station. The one where you pump it or it's got a battery-powered motion sensor. You put your hand underneath it and the, the, yes. the, it mm -hmm. dispenses the sanitizer. Those units are on order. They're expected in August, but uh, they've been on order for a few months, and hopefully the, the delivery date remains uh, solid. A lot of our deliveries have been pushed because of, obviously, the demand of a lot of these products throughout the, throughout the, the, the country, if not the world. Sure. But as soon as those uh, devices mm -hmm. come in, we'll be installing them in all of our coach cars, you know, over 1,000 coach cars. On a couple of occasions, we actually handed out masks and uh, uh, small bottles of hand sanitizers to our customers as they came through the concourse uh, on their way to get to their trains home. Did that uh, on a couple of occasions, trying to encourage everybody to use the masks and the, and the sanitizers. The transition to paperless ticketing using phone apps, uh, that of course has been, been underway for quite some time. Uh, do you find that accelerating uh, in, in the current situation? One of the things we did was obviously identify, you know, for our employees' safety, the best thing they could do is not cut uh, tickets and collect cash. So we put a campaign together, launched it in June, called Touch Less, Pay Less. And so we had adapted a fare structure where it's basically $10 uh, 
uh, all day, anywhere you want. Doesn't matter what zone you're in. Farther out you are, obviously it's a greater benefit. But that campaign's been successful. The numbers can increase weekly, um, and it's pushing more people toward the app. Obviously, once again, when you're only running eight, nine, ten percent of your ridership, the vast majority of people haven't been exposed to that yet, and and they may not be exposed to it for a while. So we're we're creatively um, constantly looking at other ways to uh, migrate the uh, the cash and the cash handling off the trains. And we think we'll have a solution for that with ticket vending machines, possibly this fall that we'll have to take the board. Huge investment. I wanted to talk about the uh, CREATE program, the, the improvements which now have been underway for, oh, in my memory, they've been going on for at least 20 years and there's and they've made some good progress. So um I, so let's let's talk about that a bit because uh, the, the the create program is to is of course to improve traffic flow uh, rail traffic flow freight and passenger through the chicago region if you look at the at the map of the rail system it kind of looks like a bowl of spaghetti <laughs> and it's uh it's rather complicated can you describe some some of the the benefits uh that the some of the create projects have the completed projects have given you in terms of operational improvements, uh, fewer delays, uh, freight train delays, uh, so on and so forth. The most notable one that we've been involved with actually uh, completed in 2015, which is uh, the, the P1 Create project, which was we call the Inglewood flyover, which uh, at, uh, at about 63rd Street on our Rock Island district, the NS crossed us right there in the diamond. Even though we controlled those diamonds, um, still, you had NS freight trains going through there. You had about uh, 44 NS trains and another 20-some Amtrak trains, in addition to our 78 Rock Island trains that all that would traverse those diamonds. So in 2015, that project completed. There was a, a, about a almost mile and a half flyover put in over the uh, over the NS tracks, and uh, that is. Uh, created a, a, a great uh, decongestion of that valve right there. Because uh, on any given day, like I said, there's, there's NS trains going across, and as tra uh, freight trains started increasing their length at times, of course, anything can happen. If a freight happens to be disabled, of course, then you got more troubles on your hands. So that's been working out real well for us. Uh, um, so we're very happy with that project. The, um, the current one that we add that a lot, a majority of the Chicago area is involved in that we've been talking about for years is the 75th Street SIP, which is a, uh, it's just a, it's a uh, combination of about five different projects that are involved with it. Um, most notably for us is uh, Belt Junction and Forest Hill. And uh, Forest Hill is where the CSX, CSX comes out of their yard. We cross them with the Belt and the UP and us. And uh, that, that those diamonds right there turn in that c can turn into a big trouble for our Southwest service uh, line. So that project is actually underway as far as diamond construction because there was enough funding. So what will happen is as the CSX comes out of the yard and goes north, there's going to be a flyover over the current diamonds right now. There'll be three tracks flying over that. Um, and in, in the same uh, project scheme, Belt Junction, which is another uh, uh, funnel, I'll call it, uh, that's being done, is being designed, but there's enough funding right now for design of the entire five projects, but only enough construction money at the moment for a couple projects. So at the moment right now, Metro is involved with designing, uh, um, help the, the, uh, the belt junction to be untangle that funnel, and then also 
at the end of the day, one, one project we call our P2 project, we're actually going to take our Southwest service, which currently connects to the NS tracks right there at 74th, 75th Street area and heads north to the city. But now the end result will be the design, which will now take our Southwest service tracks and bring them to the Rock Island tracks um, and connect and go over the flyover and go triple track into the city of Chicago now. Now getting away from being on the NS tracks and having our own routes through uh, up on the Rock Island into LaSalle Street Station now. So that'll help with that situation. In addition to that, it has another compounding effect. Now we'll be able to reduce the amount of trains that actually go into Union Station, which uh, provides uh, decongestion, so to speak, and into Union Station. Again, now those projects have design funding. The construction funding is still being worked on between all the create partners and the federal partner, you know, the uh, AAR, a uh, lot of different parties involved with it. We're still behind the scenes trying to get the construction money because without getting that final piece of construction money, the, that part of the puzzle doesn't complete that whole 75th Street SIP project. Any projection on when uh, funding, construction funding will, be, will become available? In the best case scenario, when, when do you see these, these projects coming to fruition and being in operation? I wish I had an answer for that yeah. part of the question. I can tell you that our design will be done in about 18 yeah. months. That's the time frame that we've been allocated. I do know that Create uh, team is working diligently behind the scenes to try and secure some funding to uh, complete that portion of it. I, I, I don't know. I, I wish I could tell you, but I don't really know. Let's hope it's uh, sooner than, uh, than later. Greg Godfrey. Director of Dispatching for the, uh, for the Metro System. Uh, you've got quite a job on your hands. Um, uh, as you know, uh, freight train operations have, have uh, changed uh, significantly in, in the past few years uh, with uh, the precision scheduled railroading and longer trains. Uh, how has that affected dispatching Metro trains from, you, from your experience? Sure, Bill. Well, communications and coordination are a cornerstone to making Chicago work between all the traffic control offices. And certainly longer uh, trains um, have primarily actually been affected by positive train control. Uh, with the uh, addition of uh, this new technology, obviously there are two components, right? There's longer trains, there are grade crossing issues, but now you get into system issues where uh, slight anomalies on board may uh, affect operation of trains. Uh, in, in one month this year, um, we had 12 freight trains in emergency. Uh, the uh, diamonds just outside of LaSalle Street at a place called 16th Street Tower, Clark Street, affected us twice in one month where very long train was stopped recovering uh, over, over many miles. So the opportunity for us in a lot of the types of projects that uh, come about because of CREATE that Bruce was mentioning is the recovery of the system is, is improved by the separation of traffic. So PSR is great for the freight railroads, but it's not great if all of these CREATE projects don't come to fruition sooner rather than later because of the, the excess capacity. Some of these diamond locations are so close to each other, uh, you can shut multiple railroads down 
quite frequently. Um, and then now the, the congestion cascades, not in terms of minutes, but now you're looking into hours because one long train now can't get through. Um, and then you back up another series of long trains. And then now you have passenger trains uh, in that mix. Um, you know, Bruce had also asked me to look into the value of you know, this, this separation. If, if you're coming out of LaSalle Street uh, in the before Engle, Englewood, uh, before some of these uh, longer trains, you would have been stopped uh, probably at a minimum of three or four minutes for, for uh, a clearing move. Uh, operationally with the, the volume of trains, that's four and a half hours of operational efficiency that we gained in one flyover. So now if you add all of those other uh, projects together, um, PSR's impact on the Chicagoland network significantly diminishes. Um, whereas in the previous world, you've got customers sitting at, let's call it 95 cents a minute, that's $51,000 a day of, of customer, customer frustration. So we really do see the value of, of these separation projects, we can understand why freights want to do PSR um, and run longer trains and run scheduled trains. But if you couple PTC anomalies as we're working through those systems, longer trains, but without all of these uh, construction projects actually built in, in the ground, it's really hard to operate the network, uh, no matter how well, your relationships work with each of the other train dispatching offices. Greg's sure. exactly right about relationships. The one thing that Greg uh, houses in his uh, facility where he operates out of is the CTCO, Chicago Transportation Coordination Office. And that's, that's staffed by all the class ones that uh, have, a, have a stake in the Chicago terminal. And uh, the, the relationship is, uh, I, I don't want to downplay our relationship because it's, it's a great relationship with the freights. Um, you call it the spaghetti bowl. I, I happen to call it the spider's web. And, it, and either, <laughs> however you want to look at it, sure. it's a challenge. I mean, you've got anywhere from 1,300 to 1,400 plus trains a day coming in and out of the Chicago terminal. And when I tell people that, it's just mind boggling. They, I mean, you can talk all day long about how congested it is, but when you put numbers down, people, People, when they see data or they hear data, then it really has an impact on what you're trying to, to uh, express to them. But uh, our relationship, I mean, we, we have a, a, a call every morning that we go over our operational performance. And on that call are the, uh, our, our, our uh, freight partners that have a stake in it. And in addition to that call, on a, on a weekly basis, there's individual calls, the NS, CSX, CN, CP, and we talk about what's going on the challenges and we try to work with each other to understand you know we have a published schedule they don't have a published schedule even though they've got psr we've been actually running psr when it comes down to it for over 36 years because we do have a schedule but um so we try to work with each other if they've got to get a certain train from a certain point to a certain point you know we'll work with them we'll, we'll they'll let us into their slots we'll let us uh, we'll let them into our slots as long as we can keep the gears and the puzzle all working together. So the coordination uh, with Greg's team and, 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 and Rich Oppenheim's team as well, too. And, and uh, you know, Rich ran the Milwaukee, the, runs the Milwaukee CUS district, which is challenging because we get CP freight loads constantly and a few other ones here and there, but primarily CP freight loads. 
Um, but the relationship that we've had, we were probably uh, uh, charting some of the lowest, even though freight traffic is down. I know car loads are down over 20% year over the, uh, over the last year. At the same time, though, our freight delays, even before COVID, were actually trending downward significantly because of our cooperation with the freights and their cooperation with us and those relationships that Greg and Rich has established over the many years. So I just wanted to throw that in too. Just looking at some of our freight delays recently, almost a third of them are in the 75th Street SIP area. So if, if it's relationships plus infrastructure, then, then, then we're really winning once we get these projects. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a really good point. And, and Bill, I have one more thing to that. Um, and I give a board report every month to uh, our, our board of directors talking about our on-time performance and our Southwest service is a highlight because we will have a number that we come in for the month, any given month for on-time performance. And then I incorporate or I take out the delays that would have been uh, uh, not caused by or, or taken away by the, the uh, that great project at 75th. And it, the number goes up several percentage points automatically. So it's it's definitely going to be a big thing once that uh, 75th Street SIP create project is fully complete. We're, we're essentially working with an infrastructure that's about 100 years old or, or more. And it was designed with basically with hiding places for the freight trains so that we were able to maintain our schedule and then move the freights when the, uh, the windows opened up. And now that the, uh, the the length of the trains has increased so much, our hiding spots don't work anymore. And we're very often faced with uh, blocking our trains or blocking uh, the UP's straight line. And it's, it's definitely added a challenge to the picture. The Chicago terminal is probably the most complex operation uh, in, in terms of uh, a dispatching uh, in, in, in the world, I think. Would you, would you agree? Bill, can I, uh, can I offer a, a personal experience here? Sure. I, um, I actually dispatched out of PSCC and 40 office in New York. Okay. Uh, so there's 1,300 plus trains. It's a back and forth network. Yes, it's commuter. Yes, it's high speed. You can cut out that railroad. You could put it anywhere in the world. And it's a passenger railroad that can pretty much be on any linear network in the world. Chicago, you can't do that. It's 1,300 trains. It's, as we say, a spaghetti or a, a spider's web. There is nothing like it anywhere. And there are diamonds everywhere. And there are different railroads and agreements everywhere. And there are different PTC overlays and interactions everywhere. So... Um, it is very unique from a coordination and relationship perspective that um, I think the folks here all want to make it work no matter what railroad you're at. It's just what, what the challenge is, is, like Rich says and like Bruce and Jim also say, is it, there are just so many competing needs to keep you know, the U.S. going because there, there are so many demands on this network. Well, Chicago, uh, it has been, is, and I think will be for a very long time, the railroad crossroads of the nation. How many individual dispatching locations are there for the Chicago terminal? It's quite the complex system, uh, uh, and it's not just in Chicago either. The uh, BNSF, one of the busiest lines that uh, Metro operates on, 
their dispatchers are in Fort Worth, Texas, and, and handling the line from there. Uh, the Union Pacific, uh, their dispatchers are out in Omaha. The Canadian Pacific, who I deal with on a, a daily basis and, and has a, a key role in, in making our trains run, because they actually do the dispatching for us on, on the lines that, that, I, that I handle, they're up in Minneapolis. So uh, once upon a time, everybody was right here, and you could probably get everybody in a big room fairly easily and, and, and have a good discussion. But now it's uh, uh, everybody that, that controls our fate is, is uh, miles and miles away, and uh, very often they're, they're faced with uh, uh, different challenges and uh, a different focus on what needs to be done here. So we have to constantly remind them that we're here and we need to get people to work on time. What is in the pipeline in terms of uh, equipment and, and facilities uh, for, for the foreseeable future? Well, um, rolling stock-wise, we are in the process of a procurement. Old cars that are running on the system right now uh, date 1953. So we're looking at replacing anywhere between 25 and 50% of the fleet. Funding uh, came from Illinois finally. And uh, once again, we're in the process of that. Uh, hopefully mid to late fall, uh, we should be going to the board to talk about some of that equipment. We actually um, partnered with Progress Rail Services and purchased older AC technology uh, SD70 Max, um, which uh, used to, you know, obviously were the workhorse of freight. They, they're the 40-2 of the day. Yeah. And um, we've converted those now, or are in the process of converting those to an SD70 Mac passenger unit. Um, hopefully, we're getting delivery of those. Um, best emissions fuel print we'll have here in Chicago. It's got a great fuel fuel print, and um, obviously with the AC technology moving away from DC, the reliability is going to go way up. So, we haven't had the ability to dive into the latest and greatest, but we've been doing with our limited resources some really interesting things, and we actually are in conversation all the time with people about anything from hybrids, alternate fuels, batteries. Uh, we're constantly testing and feeling the market to see where an opportunity exists to either pilot something like that or not. On the uh, our electric district side, we put some new cars in service in 2005, built by Nippon Sherio USA, and then uh, su supplemented that fleet in 2009 through 2011. Those cars are bulletproof. Um, they, they, they literally have been such a return on investment it, it's it's almost unfathomable from a, from a railroad perspective to say that you can go now uh, 15 years without losing a traction motor is is unbelievable and that's what we're experiencing they've also seen and given us with that modern technology a 25 percent reduction of energy energy consumption obviously that goes right to the bottom line um we are looking on another equipment piece um at uh, the new um track technology type equipment out there. I mean, your, your standard um, go out on the railroad with, you know, a Sperry type car or something like that. We're really looking at the possibility of starting to mount some of that as some other agencies have done, maybe underneath uh, some of our carriages and then basically inspecting the track every time the train moves. So we're, we're, we're definitely looking and we're definitely very, very interested in, in modernizing a lot. That's the first I've heard of uh, uh, mounting uh, uh 
rail flaw detection equipment uh, on board and and uh, for, for a passenger railroad and and you using it uh, while the trains are operating that 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 would if that works that would have that would save a tremendous amount of uh, uh track time i would think absolutely yeah um you know toronto um uh, subway system uh ttc they actually are doing it um they're a little different operation a little different uh design but we've been working with our partners and and you know, the industry to see if the possibilities here on um, the, the big challenge has always been the speed, but it looks like the technology is close enough now that at our track speed, 70, 70 plus mile an hour, that we can actually capture the data where traditionally you're down in the 30 to 50 range. So it, it's, it's maybe, maybe within reach. No, we've even been yeah. approached by a uh, rail tech at the university of Illinois. Yes. So they're looking to do a similar project and study. So, uh, we've been involved with many projects with the University of Illinois and Railtech, and now they're they're looking into the same type of uh, of uh, system and uh, innovation that's uh, that could be out there that could yeah save save a lot of labor time and create efficiencies for operating on the track, increase track longevity, just a plethora of different things that can uh, help increase operational uh, lifetime. This would handle rail flaw detection, but would it, would this also be applied to track geometry, for example? We do our standard testing every year, twice a year. We do uh, rail flaw detection and track geometry. And uh, this would be com a combination of both. So this way you, you get all the data at one time. Because right now we go out with two different uh, sets of equipment, one for the you know, detection and one for the geometry. And now the, the, the idea is to combine both. So now you're getting all the data at the same time. And, uh, and at higher track speeds, because some of the current equipment that's out there for rail detection and geometry Depending on the, the manufacturer, some of the the, uh, the speeds of operation are slower than others. This is going at actual speed. So now we, you know, instead of um, occupying a block or a territory for a, a limit, you know, a lengthy amount of time to get the testing done, now it can be done at operational speed. So which is a, which is another huge uh, advantage for yeah. us. The Railtech program. That's that's the uh, University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Yes, that is. Okay. Yes. Chris, Dr. Barkin. Chris yeah, they're Barkin. just getting into it. So, I mean, I know a lot of the uh, the freights have been looking into it on their own with their own uh, their own R and D department, but uh, the uh, rail tech folks are uh, now uh, getting involved in it as well. So we, yeah, we're happy to partner with them as well. I just wanted to go back to uh, to the locomotives, the conversions of of SD seventy Max to passenger service. Uh, I guess you would would you call that a, a return to a six axle power? The interesting thing is, um, yeah, they're going to be six axles, but uh, I think three and four are going to run idle. Uh, so they'll bear the weight of the locomotive, but um, they're not going to be tractive. EM, I was at EMD, or I should call it Progress Rail, about six years ago, and I forget the road that was buying them, but they were buying SD70 um, right off the shelf with four-axle power, six-axle locomotives with four-axle power. And that's where the conversation really started. It's like, we don't need axles. We don't uh, tow a train over a mountain. Why can't we do one of these for ourselves? And and the funny part about it is they actually said, well, back in the day, I think it was the uh, late 80s, early 90s, they sold those locomotives to Alaska Railroad. So we did a we did enough research before we went out to those locomotives and and um, understood that it really is cutting edge for the current technology, but it's also not the first time it's been done. That's true, Jim. If you go, uh, if you go back way, way back in the day to the '40s and the '50s, uh, the the uh, EMD E series, E E sevens, eights, and nines, though those had a uh, 
uh, six axle, but they were A1A configuration where the center axle on each truck was not powered. So this is really, this is a, a modern version of, of the E8, I guess. The rail fans will love it. We definitely have a following of rail fans. Uh, we've been <laughs> painting locomotives with our historic heritage colors, and that's, that's really been a positive. Uh, in these depressing times, it's been a very positive note every once in a while to have one of those things get out there, and we definitely have a good following there. The future of um, commuter rail is, is going to be strong. We've seen it, obviously, pre-COVID. We're up to 31 commuter railroads in the country. This is a huge investment. You know, some of the smaller systems, these cities are identifying the, the vast benefits of commuter rail. I mean, it, it's a huge investment. So to understand and to actually put money and dollars to that, you know, in some of the other cities more recently, it's, it's just, it's just the way to do things. I like to always use the term. We were green before green was invented. You cannot move more people on one gallon of whatever than you can as efficiently as passenger train. Um, we're on our, on our, great days um, pre-COVID, we were up to 1,700 people uh, you know, behind one locomotive. And that, you, you can't touch that in any other industry other than uh, magic carpets. So um, I think the future for commuter is strong. I think we're here for a long haul. Um, we are going to all have to evolve in the, in the coming years to understand new ridership patterns. But I think there's a great opportunity for commuter and, and railroading in general to have uh, a new heyday coming because of the fact that people are going to do things for different reasons and traditional workplace is going to change, but that the workforce is what's really what we need to follow and change. And new and upcoming workforce, they, they really are about doing things efficiently. They are about doing things environmentally friendly and safe. And that's what we're all about. And we didn't even know it back in the fifties. Well, I think uh, what, uh, what what you folks are doing, and of course the uh, Kellyanne, the uh, the Commuter Rail Coalition, I think uh, uh, really have to commend you on, uh, on the work you're doing to keep commuter rail uh, in the public eye, but also uh, keep it in the eyes of, of of the people who pull the purse strings on Capitol Hill. Extremely important, especially now. Especially now, I think you you hit them on the head. Absolutely. Listen, I'd like to thank all of you uh, for joining us. I uh, wish all of you uh, continued success, good health, and uh, as, we, as we say in the industry, uh, have a safe day. Thank you so much to everyone. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. Thanks, Bill.